Thanks for tuning in for Redemption Church Online. We continue in our study through the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter is a letter written by the Apostle Peter to churches throughout the region of his day. And we've been going through uh, this book, and the last couple of sermons have been very specific instructions for very specific people. And uh, today we're going to look at much broader instructions, things that apply to all of those whom we've referred to in this sermon series, strangers on the earth. In other words, Christians, those who, who live on this earth as a temporary home, but belong to a far greater and an eternal kingdom, which is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to go uh, very broadly and, and look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. I'll read chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Finally, all of you be like-minded and sympathetic. Love one another and be compassionate and humble. Not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, give a blessing, since you were called for this, so that you may inherit a blessing. Verse 10 says, For the one who wants to love life and to see good days... Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do what is good. Let him seek peace and pursue it because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to hear their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. Okay, so in the first verse, we have five different things that we're instructed to do. And then in, in verses 9 through 12, it kind of centers in on one specific thing that we're supposed to do. So we're going to look at each of those. Uh, and because of there's five things in the first verse, uh, and there's not a lot of context to give those meaning, I'll point us to some other scriptures that me mention those topics and how Christians are to apply them as well. And so the first thing, and if you have the handout, you can fill in the blanks or you can take notes, even if you don't have the handout, is that strangers are unified by the gospel. Strangers are unified by the gospel. Politics and race and things of this world are tearing apart the body of Christ. It's tearing apart our world in general right now, especially here in the United States of America. But of more concern is the fact that they are tearing apart the body of Christ, that people within the Christian community are finding it difficult to fellowship with one another and to walk, into, walk in unity together over the politics of our day. What we need is to focus on the gospel because the gospel unifies us as believers. The gospel is what brings us together and makes it possible to, be, to live and to walk in unity. Gospel-centered ministry and gospel-centered lives are the answer for today. If we're going to do what Peter commands us to do, what he instructs us to do here, all of you be like-minded. Certainly we can't be like-minded on all issues, but the one thing that we can be and we must be like-minded on is the gospel. And it's the one thing that, that once we focus on it, it, makes, it puts everything else into perspective. When we make minor things the main thing, then we certainly lose sight of what truly is the main thing, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I say that strangers are unified by the gospel. It's the thing that brings us together. It's the thing that makes it possible for us to walk in unity. We see this in the lives of Jesus' 12 disciples. He chose 12 men to follow him and to become apostles and, and to carry out the ministry of the kingdom after he left the earth. And he did not choose men who were all cut from the same cloth. 
he chose men from very different backgrounds. In fact, two that stand out in particular are a man that is identified in the Gospels as Simon the Zealot. Now, the zealot means more than he was just zealous or that he had a lot of passion for a certain subject. The zealots were actually a, a political group at the time. And this, the thing that's interesting about the zealots is the zealots, that, you have to understand, first of all, that the Jews were living uh, on the land that God had promised them, but at the time it was occupied by the Roman Empire. And so they're, they're, they're living under um, the rule and the reign of really a foreign power, somebody that had taken over their land and said, you're going to live the way we tell you to live here. Now, there were a lot of Jews. Most Jews were very upset about that, as we would be as Americans. If somebody came and took over America, uh, there would be a lot of different responses and reactions to that, but most of us would be upset. The zealots in particular were a group that were, were motivated by a desire to overthrow the Roman Empire in the region. It was their desire to take back the land that was promised to them by God in the Old Testament, the land that was theirs for many, many years, to take it back from the Roman Empire and to set up a, a Mosaic-style leadership as prescribed in the Old Testament. They particularly hated, this is what you need to know, they particularly hated Jews who, who empathized and worked together with their Roman occupiers. Those were their least favorite people. They hated the Roman occupiers, but they really hated their fellow Jews who aligned themselves with the Romans. In fact, they would oftentimes carry out assassinations on both Roman officials and Jewish people, and they were, they were, they were known for their zeal in wanting to overthrow the Roman Empire. What's interesting is that Jesus chooses a man like that. Now, we don't know to what degree he held to that ideology and philosophy. We just know that he's identified as being with the zealots. He, so Jesus chooses Simon the zealot, and then on the other end of the spectrum, he chooses this guy named Matthew. And if you remember the story of Matthew, Matthew was a tax collector. What was a tax collector? Tax collectors back then were very different than they are today, tax, or, or significantly different, let's say. The, the main thing about tax collectors is that Matthew was a Jew who got rich collecting taxes from his own Jewish people to give to the Roman government. In other words, Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector are on complete opposite ends of this political and allegiance um, um, spectrum. And how much do we hear in the Gospels about their differences of opinions? How much do we hear in the Gospels about their differing views on how to respond to the Romans? Virtually nothing. The Bible barely even mentions that Simon was a zealot and goes into a little bit of detail about the fact that Matthew was a tax collector. But in terms of their relationship with one another and how those differing views played themselves out, and trust me, they did, there's no way these guys spent the kind of time together that they spent together without getting into these discussions, without getting into, I'm sure at times, heated debates. Well, the answer to why we don't hear anything about that is because they had something unifying them that's far greater than any political views of this world. It was the gospel. They were unified and they were brought together. They were, as Peter instructs us in verse 8 here, they were like-minded because of the gospel. And so it is true today, Christians can be like-minded only when we focus on the gospel. 
when we focus on, on the other issues that may concern us about the times that we are living in, we are sure to disagree and divide. When we focus on the gospel, we're brought together in unity. Galatians 3 says, in verse 27 and 28 of Galatians 3, Paul says, For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed, clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Paul speaks this as a Jew, uh, as a Jew that took his Jewishness extremely seriously. He speaks this as a Jew to people who are non-Jews. He says, hey, we're all unified in Christ. We're all the same in Christ. Jews and non-Jews, slaves and free people and male and female, all of us are one in Christ. By the way, there's another great example of a guy who had a radically different view than a lot of the other people that he eventually associated with once he became a Christian. This was a Jew who actually hated Christians killed some Christians, and was on a mission to arrest and throw in jail as many Christians as he could. Why was he able to be like-minded with people that he so opposed at one point in his life? The gospel. The gospel is what unifies us. The gospel brings us together. So strangers are unified by the gospel. As we continue to unpack verse 8, which says, Finally, all of you be like-minded and sympathetic. That's the next thing that we want to look at. Strangers are sympathetic because of the gospel. We're unified by the gospel, but we're sympathetic because of the gospel. And by sympathetic, I mean tender toward each other. We have a, a, we have a, a soft heart towards one another. We have, we have a, a willingness to look for the good in and hope for the good of other people, especially believers. There's this great story that Jesus tells in Matthew 28. The, the, sometimes called the, the parable of the unmerciful servant or something along those lines, where there's this guy that has this incredible debt. It's a debt that he could never repay to a specific lender. And that lender's about to carry out justice on him. He's going to have him thrown into prison, as you would do uh, with debtors at the time. And the guy, the guy that owes the debt, he pleads and he begs for mercy. And the lender has mercy on him. And he chooses to erase his debt, this debt that could never be repaid. It was this huge amount of money, something that this guy would never earn in the rest of his lifetime and be able to pay back. And he's forgiven of this incredible debt. And then not long after that, he goes out and he runs into somebody who owed him just a, just a little bit of money, a, a, a debt that just absolutely paled in comparison to the debt that he himself owed. And he refused to show that man mercy. And he demanded justice for this small debt that was owed to him. And Jesus tells this story as a way of helping us as, as followers of Christ and as believers of Christ to realize that God has forgiven us of an unrepayable debt. He has forgiven us of so much more than anybody on this earth could ever owe us. And when we go out and we refuse to forgive others, we refuse to be sympathetic, we refuse to be soft-hearted, towards the needs and, and, and the hurts and the pains of other people, then we are like this servant in the story that he told. And it doesn't end well for him. The master the, or the lender that lended him all that money and forgave him of that huge debt found out about it, and he demanded justice for him. We're to be sympathetic. We are to live lives of mercy towards other people. We are to live lives of understanding and sympathy and and, and soft-heartedness and tenderness 
toward the people around us. Believers who don't make the connection between the mercy they've received and the mercy they are to give to others are immature believers or perhaps not believers at all. Jesus, Jesus has forgiven us of the ultimate debt, a debt that would take all of eternity to repay. And yet we are so unwilling at times to forgive other people, but we are called to be sympathetic. We are called to bear with the weaknesses and the shortfallings of other people. Indeed, this is what Jesus does for us. Hebrews 4 tells us this in a beautiful way. In Hebrews 4, verses 15 and 16, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help, out, help us in time of need. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. In, in some sense, Jesus experienced the same temptations and the same struggles that we do. And because of that, he's able to sympathize. Think about that. God, in eternity past, before the creation of this world and before the fall of man and before Jesus comes to earth, did not know what it was like to experience human weakness. He humbled himself, something we'll talk about as we continue uh, on in this passage. He humbled himself and made himself subject to human weakness, to even the temptation to sin, and yet he did so without sinning himself. And because of that, he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He's, he's tender towards us. He he. He has a, a, a willingness to, you know, I think sometimes we're just so quick to judge people who struggle with things that we don't struggle with. I mean, all of us struggle with different things. We know that, right? Like, that's, that, that's a given, that none of us are perfect. All of us have certain proclivities towards different sins or different weaknesses. Uh, and we're pretty good at explaining those away. But we're also equally good at judging other people and coming down on other people who struggle with things that we don't struggle with. I mean, for, uh, you know, I, well, I, I don't know. I don't know if I want to use personal examples because I don't know how helpful that would be. But I don't really struggle with a temptation to gamble. Uh, I don't really struggle with a temptation to steal money. Um, I struggle with lots of other things. But if I'm unsympathetic to somebody who struggles in a different way, if I, if I find somebody who's, who's enslaved by gambling and caught up in, in gambling or, or somebody that, that just can't re resist the temptation to take something for free that doesn't belong to him or money or, or whatever, and, and, and I look down on him and, and think that he's somehow some worse sinner than I am, then I've missed the point of the gospel. And that's not what Jesus does. Jesus is a sympathetic Savior. He's, he's one that doesn't, that doesn't favor one group of people over another based on the sins that they struggle with, but he loves all. And that's what Peter calls us to. He calls us to sympathy. He calls us to Christ-like sympathy. Let's keep moving through, through our verse here. In verse 8 it says, Finally, all of you be like-minded and sympathetic. Then Peter says, love one another. And so the next thing on the handout is that strangers love like their Savior. You can see how these are starting to build together a little bit. Strangers love like their Savior. I love what Jesus says in John 13, verses 34 and 35. He says, I give you a new command, love one another. You see that uh, we can leave that verse on the screen because I'll come back to it, but 
the Old Testament is built on these commandments, and the Jewish people, especially during the time of Jesus' ministry on the earth, they're almost obsessed over the commandments and what it is that God has commanded, the very specific things that God instructed them to do under Old Testament law. And Jesus comes, he says, I have a new command for you, because people were getting really good at observing a lot of the other commandments, though certainly not all of them, but they were taking a lot of pride in how much they're observing these other commandments and, and Jesus perhaps seeing that there was an imbalance starting to take place because people were getting puffed up and prideful and they were looking down on other people based on how well they kept these old commands. Jesus says, I give you a new command, love one another. I mean, that was always the intent of the Old Testament law. And we were always commanded to love one another, but it's as if Jesus is pointing out a, a cultural weakness amongst his people that ultimately what we're supposed to do, I mean, Jesus said it this way in another place, what's the, what's the greatest commandment he was asked? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then he gives a second one, even though he's only asked for one, he gives a second one, which is love your neighbor as yourself. And so this is a strong emphasis in Jesus' teaching. Let me finish John 13 here. I give you a new command, love one another, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Just as Jesus loves us, we are commanded to love each other. Strangers love like their Savior with the same, with the same intent that love has in the form of Jesus, with the same expression that love has in the form of Jesus. We love like our Savior. Jesus says, as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. We hit on this last week a little bit when we talked about the command for husbands to love their wives as Christ loves the church. We don't love, we don't love in, in a way that we define love as. We don't love in a way that our world defines as love as. We love as Jesus defined love. And how did he love? He laid down his life. He, he, he submitted himself. He surrendered himself. He gave his life for those whom he loves. That's how he commands us to love. We love like our Savior. The next thing, strangers have hearts that are warmed by the compassion of the gospel. Strangers have hearts that are warmed by the compassion of the gospel. I, I, I was trying to work through this when, when Peter mentions be sympathetic and be compassionate. I was trying to work through how those two things are different. And even as I was speaking on sympathy, it was a challenge not to use the word compassion. Obviously, they're two different things, and he, he, he wants us to see them as two different things, even though they may be closely related. And so I kind of landed, because there's, not, there's no context really here in, in the letter of 1 Peter for these instructions or for these commands. Sympathy doesn't, uh, it's, you know, there's, no, there's just no context to that. He just says, be sympathetic. Well, what does that mean in the context of what he's saying here? And so uh, I sort of had to go other places. But compassion, I think that where compassion differs from sympathy can be found in how Jesus handles compassion in Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. In Matthew 9, Jesus basically lays out that compassion leads to prayer, which leads to work. And so compassion actually is going to move us towards action. Sympathy 
uh, may, well, certainly involves action, but when, when I think of sympathy in the context of what we're looking at here, I think it's, it's more of a willingness to, to treat other people well, to treat them kindly, even, even if they perhaps struggle in different ways. Whereas compassion should compel us to do something. Compassion should compel us to work for these people's good. Let, let me show you in Matthew 9 what I mean by this. It says in verse 35, Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, verse 36, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Jesus feels compassion. He feels compassion as he looks at the crowds. He sees that they're, they're lost and they're helpless. They're like sheep without a shepherd. So he feels compassion and he immediately, that compassion compels him to instruct his disciples to, first of all, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And then, you know, it's been said, this is one of the prayers in the Bible that you actually get the opportunity to be the answer to. So I think Jesus understands that when he instructs people to pray for the Lord of the harvest, to send out workers into his harvest, that we don't pray that very long without going, hey, wait a minute, I could be one of those workers. I could be an answer to that prayer. Perhaps the Lord is sending me. And the answer, of course, is yes. He's sending all believers into His his harvest as workers. So compassion leads us to pray, which should lead us, if we're obedient, should lead us to work, to work in the harvest field, to be a part of bringing people into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. To have a heart of, of compassion to have a heart that is warmed by the compassion of the gospel means that you look at the world around you, not just through, let's, see, let's say, temporal eyes, eyes that think of, how's everybody doing here and now? What's, what's, are they good? Or are they bad now? But eyes that see this world through the lens of eternity and think, this person isn't going to be on this earth forever. And when the time comes for them to leave this earth, have they entered into a relation, a saving relationship with Jesus Christ that will lead to eternal life? Or are they still under the condemnation of their sins? To have compassion ultimately means to think about people's eternal state as, as they relate to God and as they relate to the gospel. Have they, have they become followers of Jesus? Have they become strangers on the earth with us? Or are they going down with this sinking ship that is the world that we live in? That's the kind of compassion the gospel warms our hearts to have. To have compassion for people's souls. To look beyond what they are here and now and what their life is like here and now. Because if you judge people by what you see here and now, there's people that you think, oh, they're doing great. They're doing fine. I don't need to have compassion for them. They've got everything they need. They've got a good job, good family, good house, good whatever. You know, they get to, we see them on social media. They're taking vacations and all that. When the reality is, is that they could be completely lost before God 
and be destined for an eternity apart from Him. And if we have compassion that's warmed by the gospel, then we'll see them as in greater need than perhaps some of the poorest people of this world who already have Jesus. That's the kind of compassion Jesus has. He looks out and He sees these lost people. And He says, we really need more workers in the field. We need more people to go out and to be a part of that field. You know, we talk about it often. There are 150,000 people within 20 minutes of Lower Borough, most of whom don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's what motivates us as a church. I hope that's what motivates you as a Christian and as a believer, that you're motivated by the fact that all around you every single day is a mission field. It's a harvest field that Jesus mentions. And what we need is to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out workers and that, that we would then go be those workers and recruit more workers as we're working. That's what it means to have compassion, the compassion of the gospel. Okay, a couple more. Strangers walk in humility. We're still in verse 8. We'll move much more quickly through verses 9 through 12 than we have through verse 8. Um, but verse 8 says, Finally, all of you be like-minded and sympathetic, Love one another and be compassionate and humble. Strangers walk in the humility of their Savior. Strangers walk in the humility of their Savior. I was just listening again to C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. Fantastic book. Uh, it's a great book to read or to, to grab on audio and, and listen to it. And he, in, in, in one of the sections of the book, lays out an argument for pride being the greatest of all sins. And one of the things he says is that it was, it was pride that made Lucifer into the devil. And he breaks down in, in a very convicting way of how some of the things that we consider to be great, the greatest sins really pale in comparison to the sin of pride. And we are called not to live lives of pride, but to live lives of humility. That's why Peter throws this in. I, I mean, sometimes we treat pride as if it's no big deal. Yeah, what's, what have you been struggling with? Man, I struggle with pride. Oh, okay, you know, whatever. Um, there's so many other things that we think are worse than pride, and I think, I think Lewis has a point. And that's why the, the humility of Jesus is emphasized in the New Testament. In one such place, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul speaks of the humility of Christ. In Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, he says, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humility. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. The idea that Jesus Christ, who has existed in eternity as God, would humble himself, become a man... And not only become a man, but subject himself to death, and not just any death, but death on the cross, the most, one of the most humiliating ways to die possible, where they, would, um, where they would crucify you basically naked in front of the whole world to see what a terrible person you would be, that you would deserve such a death, yet Jesus deserves none of it. His humility is, in dis is displayed in him coming to earth becoming a man, and dying on the cross. And he did that for our sins. He did that to pay a debt that you and I could never pay. We could never pay it. 
that's why that's why hell is for eternity because the debt is never repaid it's just never because our sin against an infinitely holy god is infinitely sinful and so there's an infinite debt but jesus comes and he the only one who could pay that debt because of who he is humbles himself becoming obedient to death even death on a cross that's the humility of our savior and strangers walk in that humility okay so there's verse 8 we got five things in verse 8 five different instructions and then verses 9 through 12 focuses on one thing and I'll I summarize that in the last thing that you'll see on the handout, which is this. Strangers bless in response to evil. Let me read verses 9 through 12 again so that we have this fresh in our mind. It says, Not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing, since you were called for this, so that you may inherit a blessing. For the one who wants to love life, pay attention to... to, to we're quoting Psalm 34 here from verses 10 on, okay? So Psalm 34 says, For the one who wants to love life, if that's you, if you want to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do what is good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. So Peter uh, now gives this instruction to, in the face of evil, to not repay evil for evil, but instead to bless. But then he says something really cool, is, is, and that is, if you do that, you yourself will be blessed. So if you give a blessing in response to evil, then you will receive blessings in return. Not just in eternity, not just in heaven, but actually here in life. The things that he speaks of is that we would love life and that we would see good days, that the eyes of the Lord would be on us and his ears would be open to our prayers. These are the blessings that we receive in response to facing evil and blessing instead of repaying with evil. That's why we don't pay back evil for evil or insult for insult, because in doing so, we are giving a blessing and receiving a blessing. In, verses, in verse 10, he focuses specifically on, on how we respond with our tongues. And this, this comes up a couple of times in Peter. And in verse 10, it says, Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. That's, from again, from Psalm 34. Back in chapter 2, as, as Peter is referring to what Jesus did when he was arrested and how he responded as a way to encourage us in our submitting to the authorities that are over us, even when they do evil against us, even when they're unjust, just as they were with Jesus. He focuses specifically on how Jesus responded verbally. In chapter 2, he says of Jesus that no deceit was found in his mouth. When insulted, he did not insult. When, when he suffered, he did not threaten. And so those are all things that you do with your mouth. There was no deceit found in his mouth. There was no insult that came from his mouth. There were no threats that came from his mouth. But instead, in chapter 2, it says, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And that right there is the reason why we can face evil, why people can do bad things to us, and we don't respond by doing bad things to them. It's because that we can trust the one who judges justly. Now, that can mean a lot of different things. 
certainly means that if those who harm us don't repent and receive the forgiveness of Jesus, then they will be repaid themselves for the evil that has been done. But we are to actually want their good. We are actually to want them to repent and to avoid paying the penalty for what they've done to us. Not only if your heart has been transformed by the gospel can you even begin to think that way. And even then, there's many challenges to thinking that way for sure, especially if the severity of what has been done against us is high. If somebody's done something very harmful to you, it's really hard to get to a place where you want good for them, where you want them to receive forgiveness and healing and mercy. But the power of the gospel in us can get us there. The power of the gospel in us can give us that compassion, can give us that sympathy. You see how these things begin to work together? The humility. We are to be humble as Jesus was humble. Jesus did not deserve to die, yet he suffered death on your behalf. You may not have deserved evil that has been done against you, yet if we are to respond in the humility of our Savior, then we say, even though I didn't deserve it, I choose to forgive. I choose to want good for them. I choose to bless in response to their evil, not repaying evil for evil. Now, if you do this, the Bible says you'll be blessed. Blessed in very specific ways. The one who wants to love life and see good days. You want to love life and see good days? The one who wants the eyes of the Lord to be on them in a good way. The one who wants the ears of God to be open to their prayers. The ones who want those things are the ones who should bless in response to evil, who should do good in the face of people doing bad, whether it's against you or the people around you. On the contrary, Psalm 34 is quoted here by Peter, says, but the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. Therefore, we should expect that if we respond to evil with evil, God is not on our side. His face is against us. We're not promised blessing. We shouldn't expect to love life and see good days. We should not expect that the Lord's eyes are on us in a favorable way. We should not expect His ears to be open to our prayers. We talked about that a little bit last week as we talked about husbands and wives and how they relate to each other. We see that come up again here, that those who do evil won't receive open ears for their prayers. And so there's a choice here. Bad things are going to happen. Bad things are going to happen to us, what we'll call evil, what, what, what First Peter here says, insult, it calls insult. When those things happen to us, we are to bless. We're to give a blessing. We're supposed to respond with goodness and respond with mercy and sympathy and compassion and humility and brotherly love. We're supposed to respond in a way that allows the goodness of God to be displayed and for good to come. If you remember back in chapter 2, when we began talking about submission and the reasons for God calling us to submission, I said there are three reasons in chapter 2 that God says that we should, should consider submission. One is for His glory. One, another is for the good of those whom we're submitting to. And then thirdly, for our own good. When we, when we respond to evil with goodness, we see all of those things come into play again. God's glorified. The people who are doing, doing us harm receive good in return, and then we receive goodness from God. His favor is upon us. So here's the application from, this, from verses 9 through 12. Is there someone 
that you need to respond differently to. Someone you need to bless even though they've harmed you. Someone that you need to do goodness to even though they've done something perhaps very bad to you. If so, look to Jesus. He's the only example that's going to help. When we look to Jesus and we see what he did on our behalf and we see what he suffered on our behalf and how he responded to those uh, who, who arrested him and beat him and crucified him, he's our example and he's our motivation for responding to the evil that we experience in this world. There are times when certainly that's much easier said than done. Times when we find it very difficult to respond. And that is when we most need to run to Jesus. We most need to seek Him and ask Him to help us. Lord, help me do good in a world that keeps doing evil. Help me to bless in a world that wants to curse. Help me to, to shine light in a world that's full of darkness. If we do that, we'll be blessed. If we do that, God is with us and His favor is upon us. That comes up again and again as we go through First Peter that we have to stop seeing this world through this karma-like view of this world where um, justice happens in, in very predictable and um, visible ways. We need to see this world through the lens of the gospel that says Jesus makes everything right at the cross and that we are unified by that message and we are motivated and compelled to act in humility and compassion and sympathy and love by the message of the gospel, so that when evil things happen to us, when bad things happen to us, we can respond with a blessing. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would help us as we seek to live out 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, and apply these things to our lives. God, I pray that we'd I pray that your people be unified around the gospel. I pray that Redemption Church would be unified around the gospel, that we would not divide and, and disagree over things that aren't nearly as important as the gospel, but that we would focus on the main thing and allow that to, to, to lead us and to direct us into unity and like-mindedness before you. We ought to pray that we would be, as, people instru as Peter instructed us, to be people of compassion and sympathy and love and humility and people that don't return evil for evil but choose to bless and in return receive blessings from you, both in this life and in the life to come. And God, if there's anybody listening uh, today or at any point who, does, who doesn't know you as Savior and needs to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, I pray that they would cry out and call out to Him right now as we pray, and that they would received, receive the mercy and the goodness of Jesus Christ and receive His salvation and become followers Come strangers on this earth along with us. In Jesus' name we pray and ask these things. Amen. All right, well, let's get back together next week as we continue through the book of 1 Peter.